You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, We are going to get into the word. We're doing that right now. So join with me uh, opening up to Philippians chapter 2. We've been working our way through the book of Philippians. Last week, our dear Uncle Butch shared uh, the last couple verses of Philippians chapter 1, and we are going to be in Philippians 2, 1 through 4 this morning. So uh, I'm reading out of the new living, or excuse me, new international version, NIV. If you don't have that version or don't have a Bible at all, don't feel bad to flip out your phone, good way, many Bible apps, Google, or share with someone next to you, or there's always tables in the back as you walk in with Bibles. Just grab one anytime you need one. But why don't you join with me as we read Philippians 2, 1 through 4. <clears throat> Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same uh, love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the text that you've given us. We, we just know that it's not a coincidence. It's not haphazard that you have us here, that you are sovereign, you are in control. And what you have for reality, Honolulu, this morning is this part of your word. And so, God, we ask that we would become more like you individually and as a church We would be a church, as the text says this morning, that we are of one mind and one accord, that we are like-minded, and that we prefer one another above ourself. God, this is something that absolutely we cannot do without you. So Holy Spirit, would you not only minister these truths, would you change us and strengthen us to be able to do them? Pray you'd anoint this time. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, for those of you guys that know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I don't have to say too much, but he was a German theologian, pastor, semi-spy, but he's most notable, notably remembered for the way in which he opposed Nazi Germany. He was a German himself, but he absolutely opposed Hitler and the Nazi regime during World War II. And he was a devout Christian. He knew the word of God. And through that, he knew the power that the church was supposed to have in the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually saw the church as an instrument and force to combat and fight evil in the world. And in the time he was at, it's it's arguably the most evil time that we've ever seen, or at least in modern history, the time of Hitler in Germany. At that time during the war, Bonhoeffer started a seminary, and his aim was to train and equip young men and women to go out and be the church, to be pastors and leaders in the community, to boldly preach and lead Christians, to live righteous, holy lives 
in front of incredible odds. There is not a harder time in a harder place to do so. And his seminary was actually located not far from one of Hitler's training camps. And there was this one famous time where he, he, he brought a group of people up to the hill. And at the same moment, he could see the seminary on one side and the training camp on the other. And he famously looked at the seminary and he said, this needs to be stronger than that. This, the church, the force of the church in the world needs to be stronger than the wickedness of what is happening in these training camps at the time. His point was that the church was supposed to be united in Christ, united with one another, living for Christ in such a way that they were powerful agents of the gospel in the world. Bonhoeffer understood the need for the church and he understood what it was designed to be. And in a nutshell, the church in the world is not to be passive, but actually active at engaging the world with the gospel. It's not supposed to be on the sidelines, it's supposed to be on the front lines. But in order to affect the world, in order to, to combat the evil in the world, the whole point was that Bonhoeffer said it needed to start inside the four walls of the church. And better yet, it needs to start inside the walls of our heart. Christ has to change us and we have to become like him and then we go. And then we go into the world. Paul here in his letter to the Philippians up to this point has been coming out with some pretty lofty ideas. Chapter one's just started out with like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you know what? As long as the gospel's going forward, it doesn't matter how it's going out. And he's just going for it. But he's, he's flying at about 30,000 feet. Last week, when Uncle Butch taught, he kind of turned a corner. Starting in verse 27 of chapter one, last week's text. The letter turns a corner, and Paul takes the plane down from 30,000 feet, so to speak, and he drills down a bit about our conduct and Christian character and the actions that we should, we should, we should be like. The character, the conduct in our actions. Specifically, though, Paul begins to dig in to what it means for the church to be the church. And I love, though, how grounded he starts this section. Because today, verses 1 through 4, is actually just in the middle of this section. It's not done today. Next week will be a continuation of what we're talking about right now. But if you look in your, in your, in your Bible right now, if you look at chapter 1, verse 27 that we talked about last week, this verse is grounding everything that Paul says. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, if you don't understand anything that I say next, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of God. That's, that's the foundational point of this whole section. And everything comes out of that, but it's connected to that truth. In light of Christ... Due to Christ's work on the cross, due to the finished work of the death of Christ and his resurrection, 
We ought to, we should, we're meant to, we're designed to do these things. It's all founded in the gospel. And the cross, in its redemptive work in our lives, is transforming us into the image of God. If you know anything about how the Bible starts, how the story of the world starts, when God created man and woman, he created them in his image. And as believers, as people of God, we're to be image bearers of God. We're supposed to bear the image of God to the world. And we're made in God's image, and the cross is redeeming us back to that place. Sin messed everything up. It's distorted us. It's messed us up. We've been hurt. We operate in wrong ways. We have wrong ways of thinking. And the transformative work of the cross is trying to bring us back to the place where it was always supposed to be, as image bearers of God. This letter that Paul is writing, right, this is like, this is his point, this is what he's going for. But it, remember, he's writing it to a specific group of people. It's this church in this city called Philippi. Philippi was, the church in Philippi was the first church in Europe, started by Paul some 10 years earlier, and they've still been going. And Paul, uh, by the way he speaks in this letter, loves them dearly. And what he's doing in this letter is he's pouring out his heart in an attempt to communicate what's most important to them or what's most important that they do. Paul himself has learned these lessons from Christ firsthand and through many trials and much suffering. But in many ways, Paul is writing his parting letter to this church. Paul is in prison writing this letter. He is literally chained to a soldier. His chains are clunking as he's writing his letter. He's on trial for his life. He's been arrested for preaching the gospel, for spreading the good news of Jesus in the same way this church is doing it. He's on trial, he's arrested, and he doesn't know if he will survive. And so this letter to the church in Philippi is an attempt for Paul to communicate What's most important? Like, what is most important? What's burning in him to encourage them with? It's not a long letter. It's only four chapters. There was not chapters back then. This is a, a long penned letter. We read it the first Sunday, I think it was. It took like three minutes and 30 seconds to read. But in that, What's burning in Paul is some really, really potent and powerful things that he does not want to see them to miss. He doesn't want them to miss out on. And what comes out in the letter of, uh, is two things. One is joy and suffering, right? In all things, I want you to rejoice and be joyful. We see that like 19 times. But if there's a contender for another theme for the book of Philippians, it's the unity of the church, it's the unity in the church and of believers. And what Paul says in our text here is he says his, his, his desire is that we, as the church, would be of one mind and one accord, together, like-minded, and in unison. But, but think about this. I want you to pick up on two things. This is 2,000 years ago in another culture in a whole nother world, pretty much, compared to ours. I want you to pick up on two things. One is 
Even 2,000 years ago in a church, there was disunity and there was divisions, enough so that Paul's writing about it. Like, hey, this is a thing. This happens because you're humans. Human beings have a hard time doing life together. And so I want to make sure you know how important it is to be unified. Division, drama, or disunity in the church is not a new thing. And so I want us to, to know that today's text, unity in the church, isn't just this lofty, unattainable idea, but it's relevant and it's true and it's still true. And there's much purpose to this and we're gonna look into what Paul says. But look how Paul starts verse one this morning. He says, therefore, when there's a therefore, you need to ask, what's that therefore? It's therefore because it's... It's, it's because there's something that was said in chapter one that it's building upon the same idea and it's building upon this new section and it's because of the gospel, right? It's rooted in Christ. Paul is wanting to remind them that everything I'm saying about your unity is because you are united with Christ first. But look at his questions he asks. This is, if you're a believer, if you know anything about God, this is so weird, Look at what Paul says. Therefore, because of what I just said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness or compassion. Okay, hold on. <laughs> These are the most basic, foundational, unshakable truths of Christianity. Like that, that's an automatic when you get God. Like these are, these are automatic things that are very basic. Like if you, it's like a no-brainer, no-duh kind of things. If you go into Barnes and Noble, there's not many left. Alamoana, right? You go in there, you know those like dummies, like computers for dummies and all those books for dummies? This would be in the Christianity for Dummies book, if there was one. Maybe there is one. That's kind of creepy probably. But these kind of foundational truths would be in the Christianity for Dummies book. Like, who isn't encouraged by Christ? Who isn't finding comfort? Like, Paul, in, in his letter to the Corinthians, called God the God of all comfort. Like, it's weird that he would be, like, asking almost like these rhetorical questions. Of course these things are true. And what Paul's point is, if these are true, listen up. If these are true of God, then this is what that should mean for you. And then he goes on, if that wasn't enough, he genuinely says, in order to make my joy complete, this is Paul the apostle, fully, fully like complete in Christ, secure, joyful. I mean, one of the most joyful guys in the midst of any situation, but he brings up the point, in order to make my joy complete, I want you to be unified. And if there's anything true about God, I want you to be unified. Do you see this? It's unity. What Paul is, is it's burning inside of Paul is that believers and the church would be of one mind and one accord. It's burning in him. Paul's ultimate desire for God's church in light of the gospel is that we, as God's church, God's church is his people. Reality Honolulu is a local expression of God's universal church. What Paul's desire for us, just the same as the church in Philippi is, is that we, 
would be like-minded, we'd have the same love, we'd be one in spirit and one in mind. That's his desire, that's God's desire for his people. And there is real danger, and there is real threat, and there is cause for warning against disunity. You guys know that. A lot of you guys have lived through it. A lot of you guys have been a part of churches, and you've heard about churches, and you know it firsthand that this happens. But it's not how God designed it, and it's not what he desires from his people. This is why unity in the church is so important. If you're taking notes, I got two points. Number one is our unity with one another displays gospel's tr- gospel truths. I'm gonna get to the second in a, in, in a second. Our unity with one another displays gospel truths. Here's the deal. God is a relational God. God himself eternally exists Three in one, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they live in perfect relational unity with one another. And because we're made in the image of God, we are made relational. As introverted or much you hate people, I know some of you, right? You're like, I want to do anything without people. We actually are all wired to be in community and in relationship with one another. That's, that's how you're actually made. And God desires that we would have relationships and that they would be good and that they would be God-honoring, especially to our brothers and sisters in the church, especially here. Relationships, at least close ones, right, with family, with best friends, with spouses, with your kids, I would endeavor to say that they can be the greatest platform for the gospel to be displayed is in close relationships. This is what I mean. This is what I mean by that. Where grace gets played out is when you have to extend it to someone that's really hurt you. When you get maybe backstabbed by someone that's really close to you to forgive them is really hard. For me, I I jokingly say this to anyone that's getting married. I say, hey, your marriage, mostly it was for me, but is gonna be a steep slope of sanctification. Meaning like, if you, sanctification meaning becoming more like Jesus. You know, maybe you're supposed to be like on like an upward track. For me, when you step into a relationship, my wife's amazing, She's she's the better half, by far. When you step into a close-knit relationship where the two have become one, you have to do life together, you have to live together, and if you're really different from the person, uh uh-oh. Okay, stuff happens. There's differences. And when you work through these differences in a close relationship, wow, the gospel is put on full display. I have never had to, you know, forgive and extend grace and receive grace and receive forgiveness. And I've never seen the gospel displayed in a greater place than in my close relationships. If you don't deal with your problems, like if you just let it go and not talk about it, which is not good, it's just gonna blow up. It's a ticking time bomb. Okay, later we'll talk about it. Therapy, let's do it. But here's the deal. If you actually are attempting to have good, godly, God-honoring relationships and they're to be healthy, the gospel will be put on full display when we endeavor to be unified. 
you guys recognize that. You guys see that. And the thing is, though, is God designed us to have good, healthy, and godly relationships. And he desires that, like, this group in this room, whatever happens, smaller, bigger, as we grow, whatever happens, this room, reality Honolulu, God doesn't just want these relationships to just be Sundays or surfacey or that little, like, meet and greet time before worship and the announcements. That's good, but that's, like, such a starter. God desires that we do life together. There's almost a hundred times in the New Testament that there's this idea of one another, meaning like we're supposed to bear each other's burdens or meet each other's needs. We're supposed to mourn with one another and rejoice with one another and the list goes on. We aren't just supposed to gather, sing a bunch of songs and peace out. I know that we do that sometimes, it's fine. But that's just... That's just not supposed to be the depth of these relationships in the room. And I understand that you've got a lot of relationships, you've got community, but I'm telling you right now, God's design is that we as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, like we're supposed to go deep and we're supposed to like be there for each other and bear each other's burdens and gut each other's backs and like cry with each other and laugh with each other and support each other. Like we really are. I'm not just saying that. Like we're supposed to be that. And yeah, it's going to get messy, and that's going to be really hard. And unity amongst us is going to be difficult to navigate. But God's charge for us is that we be a unified body, like his church, his bride, would be of one mind and one accord. Here's what's cool, though, about Paul. He's not ignorant of diversity. Like, Paul's not like, you know what? Um, you're just all the same. Let's just call it get along. Like, just be like each other. What he's saying is actually God desires there to be unity in diversity. Paul's aware of humans' diversity, of the church's diversity. I mean, he's a Jew. He's ministering to Gentiles. He is totally outside of his comfort zone. And over and over and over, Paul preaches unity in diversity. Galatians 3, 26 through 28, he says this. So in Christ, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He says that we're all one, but he doesn't neglect diversity or forgets that we're different. See, God's heart is actually to use diversity for his glory. If you have not recently or ever read 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13, please go. That's your homework. Thank, holiday's done. Now you got homework. Your homework is to read 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 and pick up on how many times God says, we are different. And in the same sentence says, but you are one in the same. 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the body of Christ. And he's making the point that like, like a human body, there's different parts and every part of the body has different purposes. Like not everybody can be an eye, not everybody can be a foot. There's purpose. We need both to function well. And he equates that to the giftings of the church. He says there is diversity in giftings. There's diversity in personality. Who God's made you to be is a good thing but be together, work together under Christ in the body. Unity and diversity. 
after you read that, go read Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 is a picture of heaven. Finally, when we're with God, worshiping him from all of eternity, we're not dealing with sin and the effects of sin. There's no more tears. There's no more sickness. There's no more pain. Everything is as it should be. You know what the picture of heaven is? Every tongue, tribe, and nation. The, 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 the most diversity you could ever have in the world is gathered together worshiping God. If there's anything that I want to pray for us as Reality Honolulu is that we would get to experience this here and now. God has beautifully made different cultures and ethnicities and nationalities. And my heart is that we would be able to gather around Christ as one unified body, but a diverse one. Because that's God's heart, that we would be worshiping and living from Unity in diversity. That's what this text is getting at. And when we as the church can love each other and do life together in unity, it will show the gospel and the power of the cross in a way that nothing else can. It will give God much glory when we as a church function in unity with one another. And that leads me into my second point of today. That's our unity with one another tells of Christ's character to the world. This is why this is so important. It's not just so that we can be in good relationship. God desires to use this. Man, if you know, I mean, we live in a, such a culture and a time of division. Anywhere you look, 2018 is crazy especially if you're an American, right? All of a sudden, humanity, Americans, we've become really opinionated and stubborn. Uh, the right versus the left, anti this, we're for that. Race, culture, values, you name it. We've never, I mean, not in a long time, been at a place where we are so divided as humanity and as, as Americans. I'm not sure if there's ever, you know, in, in modern history. And here's the deal. It is a rarity that amongst people that have big differences, there to be unity. That is a rarity today, that people that have differences, that are different, that look different, that act different, come around a common thing and are unified. That's like a unicorn today. That doesn't exist. You don't see that. You can't, you can't Google that. You cannot find that. If there is any time that the church needs to rise up and be unified, it's now. And in Bonhoeffer's words, we need to be stronger than that. Like if there's any time where the church needs to be unified, it's now in the midst of a extremely divided world. And our unity and treatment of each other is going to be the greatest tool we have in showing a dying and divided world the love of Christ. People will see the church, if we're unified, man, we're, we're different, we're really different. There's a lot of different people in this room right now. But if we can be unified around Jesus, and he's our prize, and he's our common denominator, 
the rest of the world will look in at the church and say, what is happening? How is this going on? This is supernatural. And it is when God unifies people that are diverse. Our unity amongst diversity will be a shining light in the midst of a divided and dark world. Jesus said this. He said this in John 13, 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus himself said, you wanna, you wanna, make, you wanna make the world know that you love me? Then love each other first. And by your love, how you treat other Christians will tell them about me. Isn't that crazy? How we function inside these four walls actually is our witness to Christ for those outside of it. Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, said this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Look at that. Just by the way you act, the world will see it and they'll fall in love with me. Let's say slightly a bold statement right now. The evangelism of the whole world is partly hinging upon our treatment and oneness and our unity with one another. Because it is. Jesus said, what, what's the most effective way that you can be the church in the world? Love each other. Do that first, then open your mouth sometimes. What did he say? He didn't say like, go out and here's the four-point sermon. And yeah, of course, we're supposed to preach the gospel and evangelize. But what did Jesus say? How, would you, how, how will people know me? By how you act and treat each other inside the church. You see, you see how important this is. You know, this is so weighty and heavy what Paul is saying. Now hear me out. I'm almost done. Kind of. Being like-minded, of one mind and one accord, this is what it does and doesn't mean, just to kind of clear the air. It doesn't mean that all of us have to be close friends and do everything together. It's just, that's just not possible, it's not realistic, and it's really not, we're going to spread ourselves too thin, we can't do that. Yes, we should have close-knit relationships and deep relationships in here, but naturally, we're going to have different ones and we all can't hang out. But... Despite that, even though we can't physically be together always, we're supposed to be one in spirit, even though that may be true, that we can't always hang out, we can't always go to dinner, we can't always be around each other. We're still supposed to be one mind and one accord. Paul ends the text today with some very practical ways on how this can happen. Verses three and four, he says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Number one, how do we as Reality Honolulu be unified? Number one, crucify selfishness. You can't be selfish. You have to leave it at the door. Can't come in. You can have coffee, but you can't have selfishness. That, that is by far the root of it. Selfishness and self-preservation has been so detrimental to the church in the world. 
And Paul goes in to say, he's not only do you need to crucify selfishness, but you need to be aware of your motives and your intentions with people. So we need to approach each other knowing that we all have a propensity to be selfish and to look out for ourselves. We have to go, okay, that's not God's design. That's not his heart. That's not what he wants. That's not going to promote unity. It's going to promote disunity. Okay, God, help me with that. I need to pray that you would, you would help me with my selfishness. All right, we're back. <clears throat> Number one, crucify selfishness. Number two, Paul would say, be humble. In other words, don't think we're everything, because we're not. In the church, what is, there's nothing uglier than spiritual pride. You guys all know the person that just thinks they know everything. They've memorized the most scripture. They've done the most ministry. They're more holy. They're the last person in meet and greet that you want to talk to. Honestly, we need to be humble. We need to crucify selfishness. Number three is that we need to care about others' interests more than our own. Think about that. That is so good, but so hard. Right, can you imagine if this alone was practiced? What are you into? What do you want? What's gonna make you happy? What's gonna like fulfill you? What's gonna be you most joy? This alone will radically change your marriage, FYI. Right there, just number three. Care about your spouse's interests over your own. May save your marriage, honestly. Same true for each other. We gotta come in not going, what can I get out of it? But like, what's good for you? What's healthy for you? How are you doing? Like, tell me about yourself. What's going on with you? I care more about the other person than we do ourselves. But you see how if everyone did that, we'd all be cared for. Right? We think like, well, if I do it, no one else is gonna like ask me. It's like, well, we're actually supposed to all do that to each other. We're supposed to care more about each other than, than ourselves. There's so much more to church unity practically than this. We're going to go in in chapter three and we're going to see like interpersonal relationships, how to deal with them. It's going to be good. But I'm going to add one more thing to Paul's list. Not that like it's deficient, but I'm going to add one more thing that I think is so important that we endeavor to do. And the reason why I want to add this is because I've seen this too many times ruin people and ruin relationships in the church. Number four, we have to choose to think the best of one another. We have to choose, it's a choice, to think the best of one another. Guys, this is so crucial. Your flesh and the enemy wants to turn a little hurt into a deep root of bitterness against people. You guys know how this works. We're so good at it. We got hurt, it's a real hurt whether it's we got left out or uninvited or someone just was kind of like sarcastic or whatever it is, right? You get hurt by someone. Happens all the time in the church. If it hasn't happened already, it will. You can either choose to think the best of that person. You know what? No, I'm just not gonna let it go. I'm gonna nip it in the bud right now. I'm not gonna entertain that thought. I'm gonna give it to Christ. Or what happens if you don't? It grows, it gets worse, it digs in, you think about it when you sleep. You can't sleep because you think about it. It changes the way you treat that person, so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, a little hurt is a deep root of bitterness. And the Bible talks about when there's a root of bitterness, 
It's the worst thing that could ever happen. So I, I want to nip it in the bud right now, and I want to say, in order to be unified, we've got to crucify selfishness, be humble, care about others more than ourselves, and we have to choose the, the, to think the best of one another. To sum this all up, what Scripture tells us is that the church should be like a family. Because we are a family, right? We're sons and daughters of our most high God. He is what unites us. It's Christ's death upon the cross that's brought us back together. And it's our unity in Christ that makes us family unified. And man, Hawaii, you know this. If there's anything that we value in this culture, it's ohana. You get that. You get the importance of it. Like we understand why we should have family and what we, we should do for our family and how we should depend on our family and how we should give to our family and what we should do for our family. The same is true and more of this church. We should think of each other as family, a local expression of God's family. And what I wanna do, I wanna charge you guys to take heart of this this morning. I know that I need to. And I wanna ask I want, I want us to ask God to make us individually into his image. And for us, I want to pray that God would continue by his spirit to make us a unified family centered around him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that your desires and your design for us as your people are so good. You desire so much. You desire for us to be a family. And God, I pray that you would continue to make us a family. God, I specifically pray for those that maybe have been here for a while that don't feel like that. I pray that we, that you would use us to include them. You would use us to, to make them feel loved and cared for and, and uh, prayed for. Would you help us, though, as a family, to, to all bear that burden? That we would feel and we would take ownership of what you're doing here and that we would be used by you to contribute. And God, it's our desire that we would be of one mind and one accord. God, save us from disunity. Save us from divisions. Save us from strife. God, apart from you, we can't do this. We'd be fooling ourselves to think, oh, well, I'm just good. I'm relational. I love everybody. God, we need your help. We need your help and your strength to do this. And we pray, Father, that by the power of your spirit, you would. And so, God, as we enter into this time of worship, we ask that you would uh, meet us and that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.